Welcome to FRT, the IF podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. My name is Conan French, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Digital Finance here at the IF. And today we have the uh, great pleasure of speaking with Hisham Ezalhareb, who's um, been really a, a tremendous leader in the banking industry across the Middle East, Africa, and Europe for the past 40 years. He's built international banking experiences at the likes of Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, and Deutsche Bank. And then he spent 18 years as the chairman of CIB Egypt, where he transformed the bank from a wholesale lender to the largest private sector bank in Egypt, with a robust and inclusive set of offerings across the entire spectrum of services. And by 2017, CIB was starting to collect global awards and the recognition around the world for the transformation that he had led. He's also a leader who's been really engaged with the IF over the years through our EMAC and uh, digital finance forums and has helped us push forward a lot of the agenda that we've been advancing in, in Africa, the Middle East, and uh, around the world. So Hisham, a, a big welcome back to the IF and the FRT. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be with you today. As I had mentioned, you know, digital transformation and digital inclusion have been big topics for us um, at the IF over the past uh, several years. And We've been doing a series of reports with Deloitte where we've looked at what's um, really helped advance digital transformation of the banking sector. And one of the things that we uh, have lit upon is that um, leadership, of course, is essential, um, but really transforming the culture of an institution to embrace and understand what innovation truly is and the changes in the digital ecosystem have been essential. And at CIB, one of the things that we found really important and interesting is your focus on what you described as a mindset shift uh, within the institution that you drove. So I was wondering if you might be able to start us off just with some reflections on the digitization journey at CIB and what you were proud of in driving that mindset shift. Sure. The, the, the most important thing is to practice what you preach. Practically, you need to believe in what you are doing. And when you talk about financial inclusion, it's the objective. Uh, because I think uh, access to finance, either in terms of saving or borrowing, is a right, not a gift. It's, the, it's a human right to have access to finance. It's a human right to have access to insurance, access to saving. So if, if you really believe on, on, on that as a mission, then the digital transformation becomes a tool to achieve that. So you need to decide on your objective and the target. The target is part of the, um, of the social responsibility, is to give access to every single citizen uh, or the right for every single citizen to have access to finance. Uh, you cannot do that with bricks and stones. You can do that only with what we were gifted with, which the mobile telecommunication and the recent technology. So the most important thing in my mission was how can I make the team believe on what I believe on? And that becomes the mission of the institution. That's the most difficult part. Trust me, uh, converting applications or, or changing infrastructure or, or, or adding up and developing certain interfaces with the customer is the, is the easiest part because the difficult part is the people, and the people must believe on the mission. Uh, that took, took time. Uh, I have to admit that when I joined the bank, a lot of our colleagues 
at the bank at the time who retired now and so on were really good people. The bank has started with good people there. There was a good team there. And I have to give them credit. Either And regardless the gender or the age, they were willing to listen and learn. Uh, then you have other generations that joined later on. And, and the most important thing is um, diversity. Because again, uh, as other parts of the world, uh, the way you use, people used to look to expats or females or whatever, it's uh, somehow uh, with a cautious approach. People accepted at the bank, the management and others have accepted a lot of expats from different parts of the world, east, west, north, south. I remember that the last expat I heard is from Africa. I think he was from Senegal. And not only from the east, but again, from, from the continent itself. It's all about the skill set. Male, female, it doesn't matter. And that is the most difficult mission is to get everyone to buy in, or I wouldn't say everyone, because there is no way you will get everyone to buy into your idea. But you are extremely successful when you reach the 70% are with your idea. And and usually the world is split into 40 undecided, 30 against 34. You need to bring those 40 with your 30, then you are at 70. The other other thing is uh, disclosure and disclosure and praise individuals for their achievement and disclosure uh, by doing things and making sure that everyone participated on that and everyone was part of the success regardless for or against and people start to see to feel the, the, the their fingerprints and the more in the transformation process either on the mindset or on the hardware we do the more profit we are making. And the more profit we make, the more goes to the people in terms of bonus, and the more it goes to the people in terms of benefit, and the more it goes to the society because of the CIB Foundation takes about 1.5% of CIB profits. And what was great is that it became a noble purpose for people. They, They started to feel that we want to be part of the society and inclusion is a part of the society. I'm doing that job to reach that point. So I would say over the 18 years, the most difficult part was uh, to make sure there are generations inside the bank who believe in that mission. They are not coming to do a job, just to doing a job. They are coming to achieve something, leave a legacy behind them, regardless how small or how large is or where they are on the hierarchy, uh, the acceptance of the gender diversity and the acceptance of diversity in general. Hisham, you've you've mentioned a few things that we have found uh, have been really important in institutions around the world, and those are identifying some early wins. So you mentioned, you know, finding some of the the profits uh, from these activities and highlighting them. You mentioned praising individuals, and so I think highlighting those people who are driving the change. Uh, You also talked about disclosure, by which I, I think you mean being very direct with the team about sort of the mission, the changes that you're going to make and why you're going to make those. And I was wondering if you could dig into that a little bit and how you you use that type of uh, what you call disclosure, um, but clear communication um, to the team about a future path and the rationale and the reason and how you use that to change people's uh, perspective to embrace the technology. 
I have to admit something uh, in disclosure. As a human being, if I give you a very long-term target and we are working to say, like, in five years, we want to do this. If you go too explicit, people get lost and lose the bigger picture. So what we used to do is to have some sort of, of five years mission, but yearly, we have very clear objectives there. And when, when, when myself and the board do the add-ups, year one, two, three, four, five, we know exactly where we're going in year five. But creating too much noise in people's mind about year two and year three, people sometimes jump into conclusions and, and miss year one because they want to do something better in year two. No. The, the way we used to disclose our objectives, yes, we have five years targets and objectives. Yes, we have a mission and, and reason that why, we, why do we exist in the society. And all of that is the general level. And specifically, I made sure that people focus on the near term, like the yearly achievement. Uh, myself, the board, and the top management. Because when the troops are too much involved in details about the five years, they will lose focus. But the most important thing that we as a management are one team, one family with the board, to be able to achieve the long-term objectives. The disclosure here and the announcement, it's very important if you want to change the mindset, is every single success, regardless, even if you think it's small. It could impact a smaller group in the institution. So you need, you need a positive buzz all the time about, look, guys, we are moving to this direction. Look what's happening. Last week, the week after, always there was a news about the bank. And people started to feel proud that they work for CIB. And on top of that, they started to talk about the institution outside the bank because every week they have a buzz. They have a news, something that we have done. And but one lesson, and there, there is, I wouldn't say lesson, there is one single mistake I would advise people not to make. Don't say we will, don't, don't go public with what you will do because now you are hanging yourself. If you don't do it, you lose credibility. But always we go to the market and say, ah, we did so and so and so. We never go and make speeches or promises of what we'll do. Yes, the shareholders, they know exactly where we're going. However, by making promises and getting too excited to make promises about what you're going to do, you end up squeezed to achieve it. And then when you end up squeezed to achieve it, then you start to make mistakes. So one lesson I learned, even with, with my dear friends, the analysts and the investment banks, they try to dig some promises from me. And uh, year after year, they stopped asking that question. But I tell them the impact of what we have done, how this is going to impact our future. But what we have done, finished, closed. But what we will do, I wouldn't do that. The, the second thing is in disclosure and transparency there is uh, maybe is, is the way myself and, and, and the top management were groomed when we were kids. We should not lie. Okay, you should not lie to keep people happy. And even if you have a friend working with you, you need to be tough with because if he's not or she's not delivering, keep friendship outside the bank. Our terms 
of reference inside the bank is what's expected from you. So when you mix friendship, you like, you dislike with work, uh, it's the road to hell. And the best thing is to be honest, transparent, don't lie, call a spade a spade when it comes to money and work. Yes, you need to be diplomatic. There is a way to put the message to people. But one of the key success factors is when we fail, we say, listen, guys, we failed in this because of one, two, three, four, five. And because of this individual did that mistake. Learn from the mistake so we don't repeat it again. The most important thing, we put messages to the troops inside the bank or outside the bank that every week we have something new or every month we have something new that we already completed. And I think that's been a consistent theme that we've heard from a lot of your peers as they try and lead institutions, which is highlight those success stories that demonstrate that it's possible that these institutions can really retool, upgrade, and transform themselves and, and make sure that you get that public feedback loop and the public attention on the, the transformation journey that you're leading. You also mentioned some of the tensions that we've talked about with investor and other stakeholder relations, as there's a lot of tension between short-term returns and longer-term strategic positioning and investment and evolution. And I think some of what you were sharing about in how, as a leader, you need to decide you know, what and where to message uh, is sort of key to keeping um, those key constituencies sort of on side through a transformation journey. And others have sort of said, you know, they, they uh, divvy things up and then say, see where we've come. Um, and I think it's a, a similar um, story to what you've just uh, shared um, from your time at CIB as well. Wanted to pivot a little bit to sort of a, a more concrete piece of the digital transformation, and that's data analytics. You know, I know that um, information is always a key to successful banking and financial intermediation. And you, you know, in the arc of your career, have seen um, a great change and advance in the availability of data and the analytics that you can use for that. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts you know, specifically on those applications of decision uh, making based on uh, data analytics. Well, we learn in our life journey. Uh, I never studied data analytics at university. Uh, maybe on my previous job as well, either at JP or or or, or Deutsche or Merrill, uh, data analytics uh, was not really part of or behavior analysis and, and 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 so on. It was part of other things we do, but never been a science that you built models around it for your business. So I learned. I read. I attend. I talk to people, and this this is the, the good thing about the conferences like the IIF annual conference or the spring conference when we meet. You meet other bankers from the world. I attended the uh, Yahoo conference, attended... The, uh, there are several conferences, and, and not necessarily just banking. Yeah, I remember very well I attended one conference talking, and someone asked me, why are you wasting a day there? The The conference was about the collaboration between genomes and robotics in addressing certain diseases, that how they use robotics, micro-robotics, to reach certain points to inject the medicine. And the medicine is tailored based on the, the, the DNA of the individual. Okay? It was great listening, learning. A lot of the terminologies there I did not understand because most of them were doctors or engineers. But I learned something there. So 
my advice to you go and attend listen see what's new there regardless because when you step when you, when, you, when that hunger go about knowledge then you better retire okay then it's the end of the, your journey uh, it has nothing to do with age if i attended those things i heard about data analytics i sat with people then we decided at the bank that we want to send some of our smart stuff internationally go through this some of them want to do phd in chicago and, and others on data analytics and and we started to build a team and the team was two at the beginning and then the two became 200 and and it's funny you mentioned the data analytics because i remember very well when we spoke about the uh, customer footprint and branches and one of our challenges uh, was uh, the traffic at the branches uh, some branches, they have high traffic. Some other branches don't have high traffic. Automatically, with the normal banking business, increase staff, put more stuff there, put more tellers, put more customer service. We said, we, we can analyze the customer behavior using the data analytics. And we're going to look uh, what our customers are requiring. Do we need more hours, more people, change service, and so on? We came back uh, to the branch management and I said, listen, guys, by the way, the branch that works at five o'clock till five o'clock and you want to keep open until eight doesn't need to work more than 2.30. Okay. See how? I said, how? Because you have the wrong mix between customer service and tellers. We need to increase the number of teller windows and decrease the number, the space for customer service because the customer footprint there is for tellers. It was a fight until at the end I said, listen, guys, you trust me? They said, yeah, we trust you. I said, do what the data analytics is saying. Let's see the results. Let's try it in a zone. We tried it in a zone. Then people came back to me smiling. I said, what? I said, it's a magic. It's working. This is that story. It's not only about data analytics, about how can you convince people to accept change, okay? Accept something new. Then data became a very important thing. We started to develop other products. We, we, we reached the point that we can give credit based on customer behavior. We were not allowed to do it by the regulator uh, five years ago. But I think recently the central bank uh, put some regulation for behavior lending. But five years ago, we went with the model to the regulator and we said, listen, guys, we are happy to run it in a sandbox with the maximum exposure of five million pounds, which is something like $300,000. And the five million pounds will not make CIB poor, okay, if we lose it all. But this is like a nano credit model. We use algorithm and, and so on. And people said, yeah, fine, but, but give us your algorithm. I said, I'll give you the algorithm, then I give you my source code, okay? I, I want you to watch it, see it if it's wrong, right or wrong, correct or is incorrect. The right, and at the time, Jack May started SME lending in China through behavior lending as well. So we said, look there in China. And anyhow, they, they had the reasons at the time, but I'm glad that very recently they allowed a financial institution to use behavior lending. And that is based on data analytics and models that are the correct models there. Okay. So... The, the, the journey of the data analytics was one of the most important journeys that I had inside the bank.
And that's led you, as you've highlighted, to you know real impact for individuals and maybe small individual entrepreneurs as well. And I think that that's what's always important to keep in mind is the the ability to use these new technologies and models to really bring uh, impact and change in in the real economy. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I just want to tell you that the that the behavior lending model that we did was for the uh, Karim. Uh, captain the drivers, taxi drivers, which is bought by Uber later on. From the behavior in their wallet, we realize that sometimes they need credit to change tires or do repairs on the car, and they borrow from each other. And from their behavior, we came up with a model that we can lend up to 3,000 Egyptian pounds. For those guys, by just clicking a button, they have the right to borrow. And, and for not all of them, each one based on their behavior and their production. So the credit limit is based on the behavior of the driver. And this was the beginning. See, here you are helping the society. Okay, Here is the fin- real financial inclusion. And that's a perfect example of the power of uh, the digital transformation that you've led across the institution and the industry. It's also enabled you, I think, to bring different services to different geographic areas. And I know that across the African continent, that's been another important area of growth. And I was wondering if you could share with us how, you know, similar stories of how you've really been able to use the digital stack and digital platform that you built for the bank to expand service across the continent of Africa and, and what this new dynamic economy is, uh, is looking for. Well, I, I left the bank really before we start to roll things into Africa, but I have to, I, I have to tell you something here. Africa is not the impression that people have about. There are a lot of smart people in Africa. And especially within the force industrial revolution, the technology part and, and the applications. I have seen young Africans there or older Africans there coming up with applications, agri-tech, health tech, uh, logistic tech. It's amazing. It's amazing. And those individuals, males and females, they are extremely impressive. So... One of the reasons I thought at the bank, myself and the board, that Africa is where we can complement each other. Okay, How can we use those applications? And don't forget that everywhere I go, I say the mobile money was invented by Africans, by Kenya. Okay, So a credit must go uh, to M-Pesa and Kenya and the government and the central bank for uh, making sure that there are proper regulation for innovation and people can innovate and so on. And look at, look at Kenya now, financial inclusion is at 98%. Okay, This is something that the Kenyans should be very proud of. And this is maybe why one of the first countries that uh, we at the board of CIB at the time decided that we need to expand there. Okay, We need to have a presence there. And we wanted to rule, and the people we met at the time uh, the, the shareholders, they were very impressed by our application models, way of thinking, how to bundle products and so on, and how can we roll that into Kenya. Uh, the other thing that we wanted to leverage on is uh, our credit culture, corporate lending based on cash flow lending, not based on asset lending. And this is why we think we can add value there. On the other side, there is a huge value for CIB and other banks in in recruiting or co-investing with those entrepreneurs in Africa uh, who come up with those, pro- have seen products, which is amazing in health, health tech, okay? I've seen products, 
how they help farmers deciding when to put the seeds before the rain or after the rain in, in mo simple mobile applications. So the the African continent is not the continent that people think about. They are poor people. and No, no, no. It's full of smart people. And a lot of countries, either in Senegal, Ghana, Ivory Coast recently, uh, Kenya, uh, Rwanda, they are the government there and the regulators are lubricating the road for those entrepreneurs to, to roll their products. One guy, I asked him, why you are so... Why you domicile your companies in Kenya and, and, and why you are so excited? Why you are not going to the UK or the US? Or, and, and he said, the, the good thing about the country here is that they tell you only what's wrong and you should not do. But they don't tell me what to do. And that opens the door for innovation. Not too many countries tells you only what you are not allowed to do and everything else you are allowed to do. And that is a huge advantage for many of the African countries. And that opportunity for innovation and, and growth, you've mentioned a couple of times the role of regulation, supervision in the public sector, and thinking a little more broadly, kind of in, in a global sense, I was wondering if there were some things, uh, thinking back again at the, at the arc of regulation over your career, and how does it um, either support or stifle innovation? And what do you think is important for the public sector and private sector working together going forward? Well, the government, either in Egypt or, or other countries, they, they deal with a culture. And, and that culture denominates the, the lawmakers and the way they approach things. In, in some countries, they think we should tell people what, they should not do and we should tell them exactly what they have to do and other countries say we should tell people what is a crime and what they are allowed to do and before even they are allowed to do they have to get an approval for some other countries like some of the african countries tell you will tell people what's only what's prohibited what you should not do so the difference between the countries and the philosophy there it's more of uh, state public sector or state authorities way of thinking. And this is why when you talk about reforms, it's very important. And, and, and in recently in Egypt, I've been following the news there. And, um, and practically, the president himself is getting involved in reforming that mindset. Okay, It's like, I want to go to the public sector employees and regulators and lawmakers and tell them, listen, guys, open up, facilitate things, make it simpler. I was very happy, by the way, it's outside the subject to see Amazon opening their first hub in Africa, is in, uh, in, in Egypt. And that tells me that a lot of change happened in terms of custom regulations and tax regulations, the handling of things and so on, because Amazon would not have done that in Egypt unless there is a real push from way up there at the present level to make sure they facilitate things to such type of companies. Well, one of the things that the IF that we think is essential is getting the global framework for the digital economy, the flow of data across borders um, and across sectors right. And we see you know, some data localization and other efforts that, that could be a real hindrance. And so um, some like Ravi Menon from the Monetary Authority of Singapore have called it a need for a, a new digital Bretton Woods um, where we have a, a framework. But um, you know, we're certainly looking at international digital cooperation and 
the need for better frameworks for those flows across markets as, as an important element going forward. So sort of, you know, you've, you've had an amazing career so far, and I'm curious as you look at, you now have the, the benefit of the perspective from all of the experience that you've had and uh, watching the markets evolve uh, rapidly and just sort of curious what's um, exciting for you next and, and what you're keeping your eye on. Well, to be honest with you, over the last few months, I started to get involved heavily as an advisor to startups startups in the, in the in fintechs or log, uh, logistic techs. I can see a lot of opportunities there, not only in Egypt, within the continent. And, and honestly, um, I didn't make up my mind yet, but I think I can go and raise money and set up a company that practically close company that go, it's not a fund, a company with a proper governance there that go and invest into those companies. And then three years from now, or four years from now, with the proper IRR, we can list that company, okay? And that company becomes a more, because of all the issues about the SPACs, about funds, about money is fungible and so on, I, I think the best way to give comfort to investors is to have a proper company listed somewhere or domiciled somewhere with a solid regulation, and then that company start to invest the capital, leveraged or unleveraged, into that word, and that gives the company a great opportunity to integrate some of the investments together. Because by integrating some of those investments, I bet you we can come up with the new Amazon of the world or the new Alipay of the world. Uh, but with fund management, the key objective is bring them up, find a buyer, sell them. But no one is thinking more strategically about how to integrate things together. I, 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 I have a lot to say, but uh, that's what I'm excited about. Well, that's great. So keeping an eye on the startup and innovation uh, sector of the economy and trying to figure out the, the right structures to really connect investment with those um, smart, bright entrepreneurs that you've seen across the continent. Hisham, thank you so much for joining us today and providing us with a wonderful reflection on the digital transformation journey that you've driven how you really change the mindset to embrace inclusive digital growth and the opportunities that you see ahead for digitizing Africa and a continent. So thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. I hope you and your audience will enjoy that discussion. Thank you. With that, we'll look ahead at future episodes of FRT with some great sessions coming up on digital identity and the proposed Global Assured Identity Network, the GAIN Network, and we'll also look at Starling Trust's annual compendium on the ways to use technology and innovate for better conduct. Stay safe and please join us again for these upcoming episodes. I'm Conan French and thanks very much for listening in on FRT.